morning. I love that song. I've never heard that before. And when we were just singing about my hope in tides of sorrow or something like that, I was just thinking this morning I was reading in Psalm 93. So if you have a Bible, if you'd want to turn there, your device or Bible. Um, Psalm 93, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the Lord is, the world is established, it will never be moved. Your throne is established from old, and you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O oh Lord, forevermore. So you see this sandwich of sovereignty <laughs> I was thinking about this morning because you have this por portrait of God reigning at the beginning and God reigning at the end but in the midst the floods have lifted up O oh Lord the floods have lifted up their voice which is a very interesting way to describe that like these floods are not just wet they're vocal the floods lift up their roaring. And I think we can all understand what the psalmist is getting at. Like we, we can know that God is sovereign, reigning over everything, but, but when you're in the midst of waves of doubt or waves of desire from within or cultural currents sweeping over us, we can begin to wonder, Lord, what in the world? Like, are, are we just going to be swept away? It seems irresistible, these forces. But in contrast to the floods that have lifted up their voices, <laughs> verse 5 makes clear, your decrees are very trustworthy. And that word trustworthy, firm, Reliable, enduring. If you're drowning, if you're being swept away by waves, you, you, the greatest thing for you at that moment is you want to hold on to something that's not moving. Or you want to be able to put your feet on something firm. And that's what the psalmist is describing. And that's our, our prayer for today. Like, there's no question the cultural floods are sweeping families, people, cultures away. Uh, the question is, will, will we just be swept along or do we really believe that his decrees are very trustworthy? Like that's where our stability comes from. That's the only thing enduring. That the currents of today will be looked upon in 30 years as foolish. Like the cult cultural currents today, we will look back on some of us, 30, 40, some of you young people will look back on <laughs> 40, 50 years and think, what were we thinking as a culture? But your decrees are reliable, enduring, firm. So let's pray again, if we could, uh, as we launch in. Father, thank you that you reigned. You were robed in majesty. You put on strength like we get dressed in the morning. The world is established. It will never be moved. 
your decrees are very firm, reliable, enduring, trustworthy. When the cultural currents go, come and go and the fashionable viewpoints fade away and new ones arise, there's only one place we can turn that is firm, fixed, reliable. And so we pray that you would give us all humble hearts to hear your voice in spite of the roaring floods. Some of these floods are right within us, Lord, desires that we didn't ask for. And that there may be many in here right now who are coming this morning with currents within that feel irresistible. There are others, Lord, of us who live in shame or loneliness. We just pray, Father, that we would find stability and hope in you. For teens who are caught in strong cultural currents, may they find your decrees reliable. For dads and moms whose hearts have been broken, may they run to you today. For ministry leaders who are tempted, Lord, we are all tempted to look elsewhere for something more fashionable, relevant, and then we turn from the only thing that is stable and reliable. So let us look to you. Give us wisdom, we pray. And do your work in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a couple, I don't remember how long ago, I was having an interesting conversation back and forth through email with an atheist friend. And he, he is quite direct, antagonistic towards Christianity. And so, it didn't surprise me when one of his emails just said, why do you hate atheists? That's how direct he is. He's from Boston. And um, we can be here. And uh, <laughs> I didn't need to tell you. Uh, but why do you hate gay people? And I said, what, what made you think I hate gay people? And he said, well, I Googled your name. <laughs> and I saw that you talk, like, from a Christian perspective about gay people. Do you hate them? And I, I, said, I said to him, I don't remember saying or doing anything hateful towards my LGBTQ friends. Like, I'm not sure where, but that just launched us into a discussion. But the part that I think is relevant for our discussion today is his assumption. See, that's, that's something fairly new. In the past, even 20, 30 years ago, when I would be discussing Christianity, the claims of Christ with an atheist, you would be what, debating the existence of God or the historicity of the resurrection. But, but now Christians find themselves um, debating much more the very morality of Christianity. Is Christianity bigotry? Are Christians hateful? Like it's a much more moral debate, you see. Like I had always been trained to address it from a philosophical, historical, like intellectual. Um, but the, the debate has shifted. It's why do you hate? Is Christianity? Moral, And so I want in this first session for us to begin answering that question from a worldview perspective, because what's happening, and I find many Christians don't, they, they, they feel it on a personal level when they interact with their LGBTQ friends, like feeling that antagonism, but, but we don't often understand why that conflict is there. This is a massive worldview collision that cannot but 
result in these kinds of feelings on both sides. And so if we understand that, then I believe it sets us up to be able to have uh, much more meaningful viewpoints and conversations and understanding. So what, what I want to do first, and I, I'd encourage you with the notes, try not to read ahead. I know that's really hard, because what we're going to try to do is build uh, an argument that flows point by point, and it will help to, to try to uh, stay where we are. Um, so let's, let's summarize first where we're headed by comparing the creation, fall, redemption, restoration story, which is the gospel. You understand, there's a big gospel story. And then when the lens moves in close, like the, the, the focused gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But that's embedded within a huge gospel story, wide angle. And that's what we're talking about here. And everybody <coughs> believes a gospel. Like it doesn't matter whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, you believe a gospel. And so what is the gospel that our culture is teaching in general Obviously, I have to generalize because people have different shades of this. But there, there's an air we breathe in our culture that could be summarized this way. The cultural story in, in respect to the LGBTQ issues is I have no intrinsic identity. If I have an identity, it is culturally assigned or individually created, but I have no intrinsic that is essential to my nature, no identity. That's creation. The fall, like what is my primary problem? I am lost until I find myself. I am lost until I find myself. Redemption, what is the solution to this problem? I must live out who I say I am. So I'm moving from repression to expression. That's vital to understand. I've been living in repression as to who I really am under the heavy thumb of my parents, my church, my culture, my like social expectations. I'm now breaking out of that and expressing myself. And then finally, restoration. I long to be socially affirmed for who I am. Socially affirmed. And that's the story of our culture right now regarding the issues we're talking about. Quick summary. And then there's a Christian story as well. And when you see this, and most, many of you know this, it's not shocking that there is conflict because it is diametrically opposed. Rather than I have no intrinsic identity, the Christian story is I am designed. First of all, that's hugely controversial. I'm designed male or female. That's even more controversial in God's image. Like this is bigger than us. Uh, second, the fall. What is my primary problem? I can't accurately know who I am apart from God's grace and God's truth. Like we live in a world under a curse. My body, my mind, our culture, my ability to even assess who I am and what my problem is has all been contaminated by sin. Third, redemption. So what is the solution to my problem? The solution is I am being transformed. If my faith is in Jesus, I am being transformed into a new self in Jesus with my brothers and sisters through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a completely different story. And then finally, I long, my, my restoration or my ultimate hope is we long for the day when we are free from sin, fully satisfied in Jesus, 
transformed into his likeness. Not creating my own likeness. Transformed into his likeness. In awe of all he is. Full of beauty and grace and truth. Okay, that's just a quick summary. Now, I want to spend the rest of this session talking about the culture, cultural story. And then the next session, we'll talk about the Christian story. So we're, all we're going to do is unpack what we just saw. And hopefully at the end of each of these, we'll have time for a few questions. And then we'll have a big Q&A later. But if there's questions specifically about what we're discussing. So first, creation. Our culture assumes that we have no intrinsic identity. Let me give you a few examples of this. Julie, Julian Bazin is an atheist philosopher. He believes that there is only one kind of stuff in this world, and it's physical. So if from everything there is, is physical and everything that we experience, whether ethics or beauty or identity, comes from the physical. He, he says, if this is true, then there isn't actually a you at the heart of all these experiences. You are the sum of your parts. If everything else in the universe is like this, why are we different? We, why think of ourselves as somehow not just, a being, just being a collection of all our parts, but somehow being a separate, permanent entity which has all those parts. So what is he getting at? Well, he uses the illustration of a waterfall. Any of you been to Niagara Falls? Like, if you go now, it'll be a different falls than when you went before. Why? Well, the water is different. The landscape is different because the water has worn away part of the land, trees have died, and new ones have come up, leaves have faded in the fall, new leaves. So we call it Niagara Falls, but it's really, there's no, what he's arguing is there's no essential thing called Niagara Falls. Like it's just collection of matter that comes and goes and isn't the same when you go back to it. And he says, if this is the way the universe is, then why wouldn't we be the same thing? Your, your skin cells appear and fade away. You're, you're a sack of chemicals. You see, from an atheist perspective, there is no soul. So there is no real you. You have a name. You may own a car, but what Bajini is arguing is that that's just something we do culturally to try to import meaning into meaninglessness, because it, the chemicals within you, which is all there is in you, that consists of you, are coming and going, and they will fade, and they will change form. Does that make sense from a secular, atheistic perspective? So, why is this? Why does this matter? Well, identity then becomes a social construct, right? Who you are becomes what you decide who you are, or what your culture tells you who you are. Impersonal, immalleable, subjective. And there are a lot of different forms of it. <clears throat> Today, this is called, or what is often called, the fluid self. It is temporary, fleeting, ephemeral, pieced together from various experiences and attractions. It is often called a free-floating self. Uh, and again, this is something very new. Like, culturally speaking, this would have been insanity um, 50 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. No culture believed this. Uh, Western culture now believes, according, according to Robert Bella, um, in a socially unsituated self from which all moral and meaning judgments are supposed to flow. 
So I find out what is real and true and meaningful, not from an external truth source or any kind of divine design, but from looking within and hearing my voice. That's our culture's creation story. And if we don't understand this, we will not understand what's happening right now. With most obviously seen in the LGBTQ world, but it really pervades everything. So creation. Now fall. What is our culture's view of the fall? Like what is my problem? I am lost until I find myself. 18th century Jean-Jacques Rousseau is famous for saying, men are wicked, man is good. You gotta love that. Men are wicked, including women. Um, man or woman is good. What does that mean? That essentially means that my problem is you. <laughs> like if I will just look within my inner voice, I will find what is true and right and beautiful and good. But if, if I look at, the, at society, that's what he meant by men are wicked. People in general are wicked. Society is wrong and bad. Institutions are messed up. What's not messed up is my soul. Like, if you believe in a soul. My inner voice. So society is wicked, solitude is good, my inner voice is pure and reliable and true. All institutions, all social expectations, any kind of rule is wrong. H have you noticed this in any of the Disney movies? <laughs> Every Disney movie. Little Mermaid, Frozen, it's all about, like the tension of the story is I, I am repressed by my mother or my father or society. They want me to be something I don't want to be. I find what I really want to be. I break out of the repression and I begin to experience life as never experienced before. That's, that's a version of Rousseau. Like y'all are, as we would say, I'm a fake teller. Y'all are messed up. My voice is, is not. High school mu musical movie. Never seen it, but great quote here. <laughs> the answers are all inside of me. All I've got to do is believe. That summarizes it well. Like my Bible is my inner voice. I just need to believe it. I need to shut off the voices out there. You people who are messing me up and, and listen to myself. A, a, a vivid example of this recently is Glennon Doyle. She's written a best-selling book entitled Untamed, sold over two million copies. And Doyle argues, claims that she explores the joy and peace we discover when we stop striving to meet others' expectations and start trusting the voice deep within us. Now, near the beginning of the book, she illustrates what this looks like. A little testimony of her salvation experience. When I saw Abby, I remembered my wild. I wanted her, and it was the first time I wanted something beyond what I'd been trained to want. I loved her, and it was the first time I loved someone beyond those I had been expected to love. Do you see what she's saying? Like the expectations, the training, the external has bound me. Creating a life with her was the first original idea I've ever had. And the first decision I made as a free woman after 30 years of contorting myself to fit inside someone else's idea of love, I finally had a love that fit, custom made for me, by me. I finally asked myself what I wanted instead of what the world wanted. From me, I felt alive. I, ta I tasted freedom. I wanted more. This is her born again experience. I looked hard at my faith, my friendships, my work, my sexuality, my entire life, 
and ask how much of this was my idea? Do I truly want any of this? Or is this what I was conditioned to want? Which of my beliefs are of my own creation and which were programmed into me? That leads to an entirely different discussion about why is deconstruction such a, a big fad that that's what I'm deconstructing everything people have constructed me to be so that I can boil down to the core of who I am and find out my why. Um, how much of who I've become is inherent and how much was just inherited. How much of the way I look and speak and behave is just how other people have trained me to look and speak and behave. Over time, I walked away from my cages. Now, by cages, she means marriage, kids, faith. I slowly built a new marriage, a new faith, a new worldview, a new purpose, a new family, and a new identity by design instead of by default, of default. From my imagination instead of my indoctrination, from my wild instead of from my training. And what follows are stories about how I got caged and how I got free. So society is the fall. Finding my inner voice, my wild, as she says, is salvation. Now there's so much here. Um, do, do, do you see the salvation story unfolding as she's describing it, like she was looking to external authority, she was doing what others wanted. And by the way, obviously that's a problem if you're living codependently as a people pleaser. Like what, what's happening in our culture, people are like, well, I used to be bound by people, so now I'm gonna look to my inner voice and now I'm gonna be free. Oh, really? But that, that's a huge assumption. Everyone's wrong but me. That's Rousseau. People are messed up and all their expectations will cage me. But when I tune into my desires, my wilds, I will be truly free. And that leads to number three, redemption. What is the solution to my problem? I must live out who I say I am. So it's not enough just to get out of the cage. You've got to be able to run free and, and express who you are. Charles Taylor, who is a Canadian philosopher, describes this very accurately as a culture of authenticity. That's where this idea, I must be authentic. Our moral salvation comes from recovering authentic moral contact with ourselves. There's a certain way of being that is my way. I'm called to live my life in this way and not in imitation of anyone else's. If I am not, I miss the point of my life. I miss what being human is for me. So remember, no intrinsic identity. You weren't designed by a designer to be someone. So therefore, I'm lost until I find myself. When I find myself, I now must express myself. And this is why there are such endless versions of expression, right? You ever wonder why, why, why there's so many types of identities being created right now? Well, if there's no intrinsic identity and you weren't designed for a purpose, you all are artists whose call in life in order to be saved is to create an identity. That's why there are so many versions. So just to illustrate, there's no way we can dive into this in detail. Let's look at the genderbred person. <laughs> and this is 2.0. There, there are others, 4.0, other versions of this. And, and I, my purpose for this is, is just to gain some understanding of how this cultural story works its way out in expressions, and it all, hopefully also will have a better understanding of like when terms are used, where, do these, where does this come from? So 
Four basic categories described here by genderbred persons. Uh, first is gender identity. And this is who you see yourself to be. And I know this is super small, so um, hard to see. But gender identity, very top, is who you see yourself to be. And I'm, I'll move over here so you can see. Um, and you'll notice five categories, possibilities there, which there's no way you can read that. Um, but it's woman, man, two-spirited, genderqueer, genderless. Those are just examples of gender identity. There are many more. And then gender expression is the second one, how you express yourself. And so you can, you can have a particular gender, um, but then that doesn't automatically mean you express it like someone else expresses. You might, for example, be butch, which would be a lesbian that looks very manly. category is biological sex, um, and this is pulling out of the physical characteristics, anatomical, um, male, female, intersex, female self, ID, male self, ID, those are a few of the examples. And then finally, who are you attracted to is that last category. Are you attracted, are you, would you define yourself as straight, gay, pansexual, asexual, bisexual? And for those of you who are in education, you will notice, like it used to be, you heard these terms thrown around in like junior, senior, high college. Now it's sixth grade, seventh grade, fifth grade, kids coming out by and, and you're like, wait a second, your brain is not near fully formed and you're making decisions about your identity. It's, it's, it's crazy. But this is part of the expression of the cultural story we live in. Remember what Glenn Newell said, you, you will find, you will find your moral salvation <coughs> when you listen to your wild. So from a secular perspective, when you, those of you who are Christians, come along and say, no, 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 this is not helpful, you're viewed as stifling someone's identity development. You're suffocating them as a person. And that's, that's another reason that the conflict is so real. So, cultural story. Number one, creation. I have no intrinsic identity. Number two, fall. I'm lost until I find myself. Number three, redemption. I must live out who I say I am. And then restoration is I must be socially affirmed for who I am. So you see, we're just taking it one more step. It's one thing to be able to express yourself like whatever it might be in the way I dress, in, in how I look, in, in gay pride parade, or like whatever, whatever that expression, but that's, that's not restoration. That's not heaven from a secular perspective. Heaven is when Society looks at you and affirms that who you have defined yourself to be is beautiful and good and the laws and the media and everything about our society is affirming who you have chosen to be. Does that make sense? Like that's really big. That that what you experience within you, the desires, the wants, aren't just put up with 
Like you don't just say, okay, whatever, you can be that, whatever. But, but that we value that, esteem that, affirm that. Um, let me give you a, a pretty vivid example of this. So you can understand. On November 24th, 2018, Andrea Long Chu wrote an article in the New York Times opinion entitled, My New Vagina Won't Make Me Happy and It Should Be Plastic. Andrea wrote this, next Thursday I will get a vagina. The procedure will last around six hours and I will be in recovery for at least three months. Until the day I die, my body will regard the vagina as a womb. As a result, it will require regular painful attention to maintain. This is what I want, but there's no guarantee it will make me happy. In fact, I don't expect it to. That shouldn't disqualify me from getting it. I like to say that being trans is the second worst thing that ever happened to me. The worst was being born a boy. Dysphoria, are you familiar with the term gender dysphoria? We're going to get a little window into how someone who experiences gender dysphoria describes that experience. Dysphoria is notoriously difficult to describe for those who haven't experienced it. It's like a flavor. It's the official definition, the distress some transgender people feel at the incongruence between the gender they express and the gender they've been socially assigned. There's little justice to the feeling. But in my experience, at least, dysphoria feels like, and Andrew's going to give us five images of that experience. Number one, it feels like being unable to get warm, no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like getting on an airplane fly home only to realize mid-flight that this is it. You're going to spend the rest of your life on an airplane. It feels like grieving. It feels like having nothing to grieve. I want us to pause for a moment here, and I know we're jumping ahead, but like, how do you respond? Think about what is your first response to Andrea's revelation of what it's like. to 
enter into, like, what would it feel like to be on a plane with no destination? What would it feel like to have, like, a hunger without an appetite? Like, that, just so you know, this is what got me into all of this. Um, I, I had never experienced same-sex attraction. I had not experienced gender dysphoria. But as I was meeting with more and more men and women and hearing their stories and inside, like my first reaction, inside, they train you as a counselor, you never express this, but inside you're like, suicide and substance abuse. 
and Greer rejects all of this and argues that since she's been on hormones, she feels worse, cries more often, is more depressed, and is for the first time suicidal. So just think about what Andrew is saying. Because our culture will say, you Christians are going to make people kill themselves because you do not affirm their chosen identity. And what Andrew is saying is, you know, I'm actually more suicidal now than I am going through the chemical and, and surgical changes. But I still should get them. Why? And this is key. I still want this. All of it. I want the tears. I want the pain. Transition doesn't have to make me happy for me to want it. I also believe that surgery's only prerequisite should be a simple demonstration of want. Why? Somebody tell me why. Like, in other words, society should cough up the cash, the medical world should comply with my desire, even if it makes me suicidal. Even if it, I'm gonna have a physical problem maintaining my body for the rest of my life, for the simple reason that I want it. And what, what is that illustrating? Self-sovereignty. Hmm? Self-sovereignty. Self-sovereignty, yeah. That, that there has been a major Copernican revolution in, in the past from theocentric to anthropocentric, but now it's even moving from biocentric to psychocentric. Like the wants define the world. If I want then that is reality. Whether it makes me feel better or worse. Whether it makes me suicidal or not. For you to deny my wants is to kill me, to hate me, to destroy me. Do you understand what's happening in our culture? Like, If we don't understand this, we won't understand the reaction to My feelings, my experiences, my desire are determinative, not just descriptive, not just important. I believe they're descriptive. I believe they're important. But they are, from a cultural perspective, definitional. My biology, my doctors, my Bible, the world must bend to my desires, not just permit, but affirm. Andrew's argument. I should have this surgery, not because it will make me feel better, but because I want it. And wants define reality. Now, think about what we've just heard. If, because this, I, I, I think many Christians are shocked when their LGBTQ friends or loved ones reject the love the person, hate the sin. Like that is offensive. Why? Because the person is the want. Like the want, the desires, define the person. So you can't reject what I want and say you love me. Does, does that make sense? Like, that's why that, because for some of us old people who used to believe that tolerance meant we disagree, but we will treat one another with respect. Like, that's 
that's what tolerance used to be. Today, when people talk about being tolerant, they mean you affirm or else you hate. And you're going, no, 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 I don't hate you. Like my atheist friends say, why do you hate gay I don't hate you. Like the fact that I believe God created my friend for something far better than he believes does not mean that I hate him. <coughs> but if you believe the cultural gospel story, it, it is viewed as hate. So in the end, as followers of Jesus, we, sh we should be far more concerned if our view of gender and sexuality fits the cultural moment than if it doesn't. Does, does that make sense? Like, I know some of us are shocked. It's like we feel so foreign, like believing something completely crazy. Well, we do from a cultural perspective. Okay, we need to break. Any, any quick question on what we just talked about? I know this is not helpful to engage a person with, but I'm just saying it to you as we think about it. I mean, the idea that my feelings, the, this is not helpful to say to a person in this situation, but as we're thinking about it, um, the idea that my feelings create reality. Yeah. The reality has to conform to my feelings and expectations. That's not rational. That's, that's deception. And so it's going to be a big way to get from there to something helpful. Yeah, and that, did everybody follow that? That's a huge point. Um, and the thing that helps me there is to realize that I believe many things that aren't rational, like God is opening my eyes to see more and more. He has, he is, he will. And so that gives us humility and patience um, with people who either have been indoctrinated by our culture or for many people that have experienced intense trauma, hurt that has driven them in that direction. So when we see our own deceptions, that this Part of deception is not like an LGBTQ thing. It is a human thing. And but by the grace of God, all of us are believing lies perpetually. But huge point. Anybody else? Yeah. subclasses being like cisgender or you know I was assigned my gender at birth and my question becomes and I, I know this may be getting there when I begin to use said normative language when I'm in a meeting at work or when I'm having a discussion with HR and they ask what's your gender what are your preferred pronouns by switching my language to the new form of normative am I in some way affirming the reality they're trying to manifest or am I affirming the they're trying to get because now the alarm bells are starting to go off and I don't want to start to begin to use a language that could give a concrete foundation to their gospel story rather than mine. I'm sorry, we're out of time. <laughs>
to live as a missionary in a culture that holds a gospel story that's completely different from the Christian story. So if you think of yourself in your business, like I have a brother that lives in Bangladesh. So he was saying 96% Muslim. Like everything's different. Uh, businesses close on Friday, not Sunday. So do, is it wrong for churches to worship on Friday in, in Bangladesh? Like are we, are we affirming an Islamic view of the world? Um, and I could give a hundred other examples. But if, if we think not, not from a reactive, defensive, people are stealing our country, but from a missional perspective, then I believe that gets us in the framework. Okay, then, that doesn't automatically answer the question, but how, how far should I be going as a follower of Jesus in using language, in using pronouns, in using, like defining myself as cisgender is, seems to be giving a lot. That's the core of your question, right? Like I'm giving a lot, I'm affirming this cultural gospel story. And um, short answer is, I don't think all Christians are gonna answer that question in the same way. And, and I know it's gonna frustrate some of you. But for this reason, um, if, if you talk to missionaries, there are missionaries that put the stake in the ground at different places because they have different goals. Like I've been with missionaries that are seeing God transform whole tribes and they can just rip apart the gospel, the, that tribal story down to the core everything that's not biblical, and build a, a biblical story. But then there are other people who are in a very vulnerable place. Like, if you put the stake in the ground too early or often, you're out of the country. You're, you're gone. And so, for example, I talk to a lot of public school teachers who are required to use the pronoun of choice of the students. And some Christian teachers have said, I just can't do that, I, and they resign. Others have said, no, I really believe God is calling me to be in this school. I know it feels like I'm lying to say something that isn't true, but my sights are on a bigger goal of being in this, these kids' lives and seeing the gospel transform them. So I'm going to put the stake down over here. And so I believe in business, in academics. Like all my kids have gone to, at some point, gone to secular colleges, played athletics. Like you are putting the stake in at different places, never compromising who I am as a follower of Jesus but making decisions, right? Because if you put the stake in everywhere, you're going to be a jerk. <laughs> like, you're gonna argue over everything, right? Like, so you have to choose your battles. Um, you, you have to, or you will have no relationship with the people that you're called to love and share the gospel. So one story I, I shared with some of the pastors last night that helps me, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in a town square this was during, during the war and, and a, a German officer went by and Heil Hitlered him and he Heil Hitlered him back and Bonhoeffer's friend was furious and said Dietrich what are you doing you're compromising with the enemy and Bonhoeffer no, we're aiming for something much higher. Like in his view, whether I heil Hitler someone or not is, is not a big deal. We're trying to get, we're trying to take down the whole Nazi regime. And they were working on that. Now, some people would say, well, that's a lie. You're heil Hitlering when you, sh you know, you're compromising your convictions. 
That's why I say, I believe there are Christians who will say, I just can't do it. I can't use the language. I can't use the pronoun of choice. There are other Christians who would say, after praying about it. Now, here's the thing. If you're using pronouns of choice just because you're scared, as a follower of Jesus, to speak truth, you need to repent of that. That's wrong. But if your goal is missional, and you choose to use language that maybe another fellow Christian might not use language, just like with Bonhoeffer and his buddies, and Heil Hitler, like then I think we need to respect one another and realize, because I know we have people in our church who are in deep within like educational business areas, and they're having golden opportunities to live out the gospel, but they have to choose wisely where they put their stake in the ground. Should we break? Sure. Yes. Great question.